0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. A podcast where
1: we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like
0: nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I
1: paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. <laughs> As a man, I just, I don't get it.
0: Welcome to to smartpeoplepodcast.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thanks so much for joining us today and really excited to bring you this episode. It's a unique story we're telling here today, as always. We have on the show Jeff Graham, and Jeff is the author of the brand new book, Dear Chairman, Boardroom battles and the rise of shareholder activism. So, in essence, you may or may not be aware of what goes on behind the scenes of a publicly traded company. So, you have these shareholders, so really anybody who owns stock in the company, and then of course, you have the executives. Well, there's this tension between the two of who actually runs the company. Is it the people that own it, right? These shareholders, or is it technically the people that are in the day-to-day of the company. But here's the thing. As interesting as that is, and as much as you know, we do cover that in this episode, here's what makes this book and, and Jeff so interesting. So what Jeff did is he mixed never-before-published original letters from Wall Street icons, such as Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett, Ross Perot, Carl Icahn, and he shows what these letters show us about shareholder activism. It's kind of complicated. It's kind of weird, but that's what we do here. Try to open it up to new things. So I'm really going to let Jeff do the explaining here. By the way, Jeff is a brilliant guy. Not only is he the author of this book, but he's also a hedge fund manager and an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School. He's spent a ton of times evaluating CEOs and directors as he's trying to understand and value businesses, right? So he talks about how You need to understand the executive team and the board and all these people to truly know the value of a business. So before we get into the interview, don't forget, we are launching Smart People Mastermind. Okay, that is happening on March 24th. We have the guests lined up. John and I are working on both the webinar signup and the website that'll explain everything that comes with this mastermind. But to be sure that you get the link Because it will be limited in scope this first time. We want to make sure we can handle it and all that. So we will have a finite number of spots in this. Make sure you sign up for the newsletter at smartpeoplepodcast.com. And we will be sending out that link this week to reserve your spot. More details to come, but this is one you are not going to want to miss. The person that's putting on this webinar has been on the show before and was also featured in our Best of 2015 Episodes. So you know, this person's great. First people to hear about it will be those through the email newsletter this week. So again, find us at smartpeoplepodcast.com, sign up for that. But most importantly, hope you can join us on this first webinar, which is only a few weeks away. Please feel free to reach out to us specifically on Twitter at Smart People Pod. We love that. Here it is, an interview with Jeff Graham as we discuss his book, Dear Chairman. All right, Jeff. Well, first, I want to say thanks so much for having you on the show. Uh, really excited to get into this, you know, a kind of a charged topic And you have an interesting twist as a teaser. There are some letters we're going to be talking about. I'll probably talk about it in the intro. But first, just want to say thanks so much for for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for having me. All right. So let's go back to the beginning. When you were born? No, I'm just kidding. Um, tell us a little bit about your background. You have, you know, some interesting things. I know you, uh, you know, hedge, hedge fund manager, a little bit of a professor kind of thing you got going on at Columbia. Not a bad school. Tell us about your background.
2: Sure. So I teach investing at the Columbia Business School. I'm a hedge fund manager. Um, I run a little fund called Bandera Partners. That it's our tenth year now. And we do, you know, kind of a value investing uh, strategy. Um, I went to business school, which is um, how I got into um, investing. And then bef- uh, before business school, I um, um, I lived in D.C. I, I-, I played music actually, and um, and on the side, I temped. So that's my you know, an illustrious background.
1: Wow! You te- so so you go from temp to hedge fund manager professor. Well,
2: when you're applying to business school, like you kind of play up the music angle. So I played in a band. Like we were um, actually on a label in your neck of, of the woods, a uh, um, uh, Teen Beat Records that was oh. a Northern Virginia label. Okay. And so, um, I did that pretty much for um, like through college. Like I graduated college in '96, and then I I, um, I went to business school in '03.
1: Okay. You, you said something interesting there. You said you play up the music aspect when you're applying for business school. That sounds odd. <laughs> I would say you play yeah, down. You have to have, you
2: know, well, some kind of a professional experience. Ah. So that's kind of a more interesting professional experience than yeah. Like I had a temp job at the Grocery Manufacturers Association in Georgetown, and I you know we'll <laughs> stopped, you know sixty five thousand envelopes.
1: Yeah. Oh, so. that's that's pretty great. All right, so let's get into, you went to business school, you come out, because here's the thing, Uh, myself included, finance nerd to some degree, I actually, I wanted to go work on Wall Street, that was my thing, everybody who listens to the show knows that, Uh, but I I don't like New York City, so I was like, that's out. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So I got into commercial real estate lending, did that for a while, made some money, got burned out, realized I don't like what's going on. But uh, I have a strong place in my heart for finance, and many people, I mean, hedge fund when you you know i'm putting parentheses around it or quotes around it think like oh it's really you know you're making tons of money it's 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 the rock it's the business rock star so yes. i do mean you I think w- about that
2: well i mean i definitely um i see that at columbia like it definitely it seems to be a very desirable job right now there's a lot of kids that you know that they want to go you know get a job at a hedge fund i actually did this um Uh, um, I kind of uh, led a group of undergraduates at Brown that were doing um, independent study and they were interested in value investing and they contacted me and it kind of blew my mind that there's like these undergrads at Brown that were interested in uh, finance and investing. So it definitely has captivated a lot of young people. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, look, it's a it's a great job. Investing in companies is fun. So, like, I can't, you know, I, 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 I don't blame them. Mm. Is it a good thing for society? I don't know,
1: but <laughs> but it's hard to blame them, like you know, for for wanting this job. So, well, that, you brought some interesting up. You know, you said, "Is it a good thing for society?" I don't know, but I can't blame them, and. Every I mean, I completely agree with you on that. That's I was drawn to the allure of a I like gambling, not saying that what you do is gambling, but it's kind of feels like it, at least from what I knew. But there's there's a lot of money. Um, but the societal benefits, you know, you can make the argument. How do you feel given that you manage a hedge fund? So we're kind of skipping the lower rungs. We're going to the top about you know, the legacy, if you will, of running a hedge fund? Well,
2: you know, what I do is, is I basically, I look at public companies. I try to understand the business. I figure out if I think it's undervalued, which they often aren't, but occasionally you'll find one. And then I'll buy the common stock. And later, uh, usually a lot later, if the common stock gets to fair value, I'll sell it. Um, you know, so every year at the beginning of my class, like, like the, the students like will ask about, well, like you're doing this this good thing because you are financing these companies, and that's not really true. Like, I, I mean, I rarely do direct financings. So basically, I'm buying in and out of public companies. I'm not contributing to the kind of success of those uh, companies often. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I tell my students, I mean, they always ask, like, you know, don't you think that, you know, like that you're doing a lot of good here? I mean, I mean that's a thing that they're interested in to their credit. I mean, like when I was in business school, no one cared about that. Um, and I do tell them, well, look, if, you're, if your goal is to kind of, you know, to do good, this is probably not the best career choice. You know, like in terms of directly benefiting society, like perhaps if you get rich and right. and I'm a philanthropist, then sure. But that's,
1: you know, that's that's not the direct path. What's interesting is I, I'm all almost seeing I'm chuckling a little bit because most people associate don't associate anything to do with investing finance Wall Street with doing good right now. So to have students who are like, are you doing good stuff? <laughs> that sounds weird to me. I would imagine they go in and be like. Is it slimy? Yeah,
2: I don't know. I mean, you know, you would be surprised at, at people's capacity to rationalize their professional choice mm-hmm. as, as a societal good, A. And B, you know, to their credit, that's at least a thing that these kids are focused on. Sure. So at least if they're asking those questions, I, I give them credit for that.
1: Mm-hmm. I, mean,
2: I wasn't really asking that question when I was in business school t- uh, 13 years ago.
1: Right. No, I, I completely, I love that. I mean, I think it's the millennial generation, if you will. Um, it, it's one of the things that's starting to come out more and more is something they're yeah. doing. What was your motivation for, I mean, was this something you wanted to do? Were you like, I want to basically run a hedge fund or invest or, you know?
2: No, you know, I,
1: I basically had no clue what to do. Like,
2: I really enjoyed being in a band and I really love music and, and I knew that that business school was a kind of a degree that gave you lots of options. Yep. You no. Know? So, um, I went into business school, like without a clear idea of, you know, what I wanted to to do afterwards. And then I just got lucky. I took this class by this professor, uh, Joel Greenblatt, who's a hedge fund manager. Mm-hmm. And, um, he had written this, uh, this book called uh, "You Can Be a Stock Market Genius," which is a little bit of a goofy title, but it's it's become a a, a cult classic among hedge fund managers, and um, and it was a value investing class, and it just you know kind of all clicked with me, hmm. and um, like the idea of uh, you know looking in the market for a fifty cent dollar, just it totally resonated with me in this way that nothing else at business school did. I didn't. Particularly feel like I fit in there, and then all of a sudden there's like this class that I kind of excelled in, and and so from there I just got extremely interested in like in investing. I mean I had like had never heard of Warren Buffett until I got to business school. Wow. And so then I just like like began to read everything I could. I got um, like an unpaid internship at, a, at like at a hedge fund in the summer after my first uh, business school year, and then I went to work for that hedge fund
1: you know what, I think this is a good place to pause for a second and really clarify or define hedge fund.
2: Could you do that for us? Yeah, well, it's a weird, it's like a vestigial term. The term, uh, people think it was coined by uh, Carol Loomis, the, the fortune journalist, um, as she described a fund run by A.W. Jones in the, in the 60s that was called a hedged fund because they uh, were long and short equal parts of their portfolio, you know. So, I mean, uh, they basically or supposedly had no net exposure to the market. And so they're long a bunch of stocks and they're short a bunch of stocks. And so they're hedged from the market risk. Uh, nowadays, the word hedge fund is essentially a blanket term that describes, you know, kind of a legal structure and a partnership structure and a compensation structure. You know, so now when the term is used, it pretty much means. An investment partnership uh, where the fund managers charge a percentage of their winnings. You know, so in our fund, you know, we take a like a small management fee, but then if we have profits, you know, then we take 20% of those profits, and that's you know basically what a hedge fund is. And so there's all kinds of of of, of strategies, you know, that can have that structure. It can be a bond investor a bankruptcy investor, a stock investor, an actual traditional hedged fund in the long short sense. It can be a real estate fund. I mean, there's all kinds of hedge funds now.
1: Mhm. I'm glad you mentioned that cuz you know, I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of it, but definitely the hedge aspect always Played a part in my mind, like I was gonna ask. So, if you're long a stock, are you short the you know index it's on, or I don't know some any type of hedging? But really, you're kind of an investment fund. Yeah, exactly, an investment partnership. Gotcha. And there,
2: there, like there are lots of hedge funds that do hedge, but there are some that don't hedge at all.
1: Mm.
2: You know, but I mean, you know, like like the fund like the Buffett ran in the '50s. You know, would today be called a hedge fund? Gotcha.
1: You know, it's interesting, as you were talking about management fees and all that, I just watched the do- uh, the two-part documentary series on Bernie Madoff. Did you, oh, really? Did you watch that at all? Oh, no, um, no, I haven't seen it. It was fascinating. It was just on, I think, last week. Um, yeah, I got It really went through. I thought it was, gr- I mean, you know, I know a, a decent amount about the story because I was interested in it, but man, it goes through everything that happened and it clarified a lot of things. Anyways, it, really fascinating. And then afterwards they talk about, they have people from the SEC saying they are currently uh, Im- investigating something like, ten, I don't know, tens of billions of dollars in Ponzi schemes. So yeah, th- it's still that. happening. Yeah. Well, I
2: mean, you know, the financial industry is a weird industry and and um, uh, marketing works in this industry. Mm-hmm. If you tell a good story, it works. And it's kind of I don't know, it's like the the dirty side of, of Wall Street and finance.
1: Oh yeah. And the, I've had tons of finance people on and they're like, look, there's a dirty side of almost everything. And I'm I'm the first to say that's true. So yeah. I mean I well, you know, in DC pretty,
2: I, well, it's quite dirty. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's very true. Um I wanna talk about so you have this investment fund. Um how did you how do you get to the point where people are like, I think you and or the structure you have created, the people around you are smart enough to invest my money to, and to take a fee for it regardless of the results and, you know, to put it into the market with speculation or whatever. How do you get to that point? Like, you know, as a hedge fund manager, I'm so interested in what you do that other people give you their money. Uh, how did it start, I mean, and how do you move up and all that I
2: think that you 'd be surprised at i mean at how many people are like are out there with a lot of capital that are trying to find uh you know young hedge fund managers i mean i mean you know i i I, I think a dilemma that my fund faces is that you know we 're ten years old now and we 're no longer you know a fresh unproven you know me wow so you know so I think if like you know, it's it's a, like it's a weird industry. It's a maturing industry, and so now, uh, you know, a pedigree, you know, actually, um, matters now uh, more than ever. Which is like obviously a, I mean, I think a bad thing, but like if you come out of a well-respected shop, like if you were like an analyst at a at a big hedge fund, and you, you know, what's the exp- you know hang your, you know, your shingle up or whatever it's right. called. You're going to get a lot of meetings, and if you tell a good story, um, then you'll probably get some capital. And and um, uh, to your question of how are you different than anyone else, I mean, I think that's a great question. Like, I think you know that everyone likes to talk about their process and their edge, but a lot of investing is about you know uh, using your judgment. So, mm. how do you prove that you have an edge over other people? Like you, I mean, A, you kind of can't, and B, you probably don't. I mean, like you can't, you know, <laughs> really prove that you're better than everyone else that's out there doing the exact same thing. So,
1: but actually, on that point, you know, when you talk about, I, I just, I, I appreciate the honesty because I have been in an industry, so I, I do coaching. Um, on and off, depending on how busy I am, but career counseling and coaching and and life coaching, business coaching. Um, and one of the things I struggled with at first is why me? You know, why why come to me? Uh, I'm good, but Ooh. a lot of people are good, and there's people with more experience. And I I did some work through that. I worked with other coaches, and and really, there's a couple of answers. One, it's your personal style. Two, it's there's seven billion people on Earth. There just needs to be more, you know, say hedge fund managers, because it's not like we're all going to go to the call it a Warren Buffett or whatever, you know? So, and we are tribal people. So if you have your people that, you know, and they trust you, then they come to you. And I just, it was a, it was a light switch moment. And I use it almost as a, a message to others, which is, you know, you don't always have to Think well. There's someone else out there doing it, or are they doing it better? It's can you do it and make it work and be of value to people? Then who cares how many other people are out there doing it?
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think also there's like like an like an element of life where like you kind of have to have like the hutzpah to not ask that why me question too much because yeah. if, if you think about it too hard, then it's going to be unpleasant. And you, you know, like this book I wrote on shareholder activism. I mean. I'm not, like, a corporate lawyer. I'm not, like, like, a, you know, like, a full-time shareholder activist. Like, in many ways, I'm not, like, the perfect you know, person to have written this book. And, but yet, I kind of think I wrote, like, a really good book on the topic. And I think it's a good thing that I didn't, you know, you know focus uh, too much on, like, well, why me? You know, uh, uh, um, another person should write this book.
1: Pardon me if this sounds a little presumptuous, but you seem extremely authentic for somebody who works at investing. <laughs> oh, <Not> really? <laughs> am I? Am I? Am I right about that? I mean, would you? It just. I, don't,
2: I mean, I feel like I know this kind of whole crew of of like minded hedge fund uh, people that that are authentic, and I think that they're good investors, and I think that they're that they're doing things the right way. Hmm. So, I mean, there's a lot. I think there's a lot of. Um, of good folks in the hedge fund space. It's not kind of all,
1: you know, asset gathering, huh. you know, bags. Yeah. And, and again, that's just a bias that I'm trying, you know, I'm talking through and walking through. And I want to last thing on this topic is because it's very important. The, the idea of you saying you shouldn't ask that question. Why me so often? How, how do you think you have dealt with that in terms of, I'm going to handle a lot assuming a lot of money, or I'm going to write this book specifically that we're going to talk about. How do you deal with not asking yourself that question too many times and just putting your art, whether it be music or writing or investing into the world? Well, I mean, I think,
2: you know, investing is very humbling. And you make a lot of mistakes. And, and making mistakes is a part of the trade. And so I think, like, you have to have like the humility to make it work because if you're too confident in your opinions, then it can really burn you. You know, what, you know, what we do is, is, uh, you know, concentrated investing, you know, so we'll buy 20% of our portfolio in, into one position. And oh wow, if you're too cocky or if you just get, get attached to that position, that's just like a recipe for disaster. So, so, I mean, I think it's, it's just like you're trying like to minimize your mistakes. Like I think of it like you know, like if you ever watch like a junior high uh softball game or baseball game, it's like the team that makes the fewest mistakes <laughs> like wins. Like it's not about the great plays, it's about just, you know, you know, not doing the dumb mistakes. You know, I kinda think about investing that way. Like you just like you have to use your judgment, like you have to stay rational and you have to try not to do, you know you know, dumb shit that everyone else does.
1: Yeah, that's a great analogy because it actually goes all the way through to the professional, you know, level. If you look at the Super Bowl, I mean, you could say that a couple of fumbles, so mistakes on Carolina, plus maybe a different call by the refs on the catch, you know, uh, these being mistakes, uh, changed the face of the the championship. So anyways. Well, I think the best example is, is the NCAA
2: a men's basketball tournament.
1: And especially
2: uh, like as the quality of college basketball has declined, that's all about like who's, you know, will screws up the least in crunch time.
1: <laughs> it's a good point. Plus the the really good players just skip college altogether and go straight to the NBA, straight to the big leagues. Well, while we're transitioning a little bit, let's talk about um investing in general. Um, mm-hmm. you know, You talk about in your book, I mean, a number of things, and again, we'll list the name of the book and we'll talk about it. It's called Dear Chairman. Um, But you talk about shareholder activism. You talk about, you know, the boardroom battles that go on. What do you look for in companies? Because it's not, you're not the average investor that goes, "Ah, I did my spreadsheet analysis and I bought some stocks. I'm sure you're going meeting with them, sitting down, really digging in. Uh, What are you looking for?
2: Yeah, I mean, I
1: think the first thing that you look for is a
2: dependable business that you can understand, like that has a little bit of, you know, predictability into the future. And then like you're, you know, trying to figure out if you can put a value on it. So you put a value on a business by kind of estimating the cash flow that you're going to get in the future and discounting it back to the present. And so if you can do that, you know, then that's a starting point. If the stock is valued way below what you think it's inherently worth, you know, then you, you know, should begin to think about why. Is it the management? Is it, you know, bad governance? Is it just that like, the market you know does not understand you know understand the prospects of the business so it's it's all stuff like that and that's like the you know to be clear that's the value investing i do there's a lot of ways you know to succeed in the markets so you know that's the kind of investing i do and and a lot of it is kind of evaluating the board and the management you know because even if you are a shareholder in a very good company that generates like a lot of cash they have to use the cash that they generate in in a wise fashion mm-hmm. and you know that's a kind of the source of a lot of, of conflict between in, um investors and public companies like they you know kind of gave birth to to activism as we know it
1: mm.
2: and so that's like a key part of the equation too
1: one of the things I think about, especially as we're talking about shareholder activism being you know, people who own parts of the company really pushing their agenda or opinions on the people running the company, mm-hmm. I think a lot about what happens to a company once it goes from private to public. I've had the fortune to, to work at kind of two companies and see that transition. Um, neither time have I enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, it it becomes all about quarterly improvements, which I think really bring down the value that a company can deliver in the long run. How yeah. do you how do you feel about that? I mean, in some ways, I I, I feel like the debate
2: over a short termism is overstated, and like that there are lots of companies out there that are that you know think for the long term. Like when you look at Amazon, they clearly have a long term
1: plan to. <laughs> to take over the world, I love it. But he he, he straight up came out and said, uh, "I'm if you're looking for short term, just don't even come here."
2: Yeah, and like the like when he you know like when he wrote to shareholders in '97, like he you know laid out the plan. But yeah, like you're right. Like if you're a, like a public company, then you announce your earnings on on a quarterly schedule, and they're public, and it's just like human nature. I mean, I mean, it's easy to to blame the shareholders. But, but I think that like we all just have kind of a short term bias and like we all, you know, would prefer to not have two or three bad years before the good years come. Mm-hmm. and, and you know, uh, being a public company enhances the kind of scrutiny that causes that.
1: Sure. But maybe on this, you know, on that same token, it, it forces them into, more action and less planning, which at the end of the day does create growth and movement as opposed to really overthinking every strategy. You have to, hey, we got to deliver because we have the, you know, our earnings announcement coming up. Just a yeah.
2: thought. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the business. It depends on the management. It depends on kind of their relationship with the shareholders and who the shareholders are. I mean, you know, uh, um, uh, public companies are weird things, right? Like you have the shareholders, who supposedly elect a board of directors, who choose the management. In reality, that's not quite, you know, well, how it actually works. Right. Uh, usually, the managers choose the board, and the board is is accountable to shareholders if the shareholders are paying attention. <laughs> and so, it's kind of like a messy and you know, well, uh, you know, well, inefficient a uh, uh, stew to mix my metaphors <laughs> and you know you know what a lot of these activists are doing are they're trying to to hold the boards accountable
1: yeah and,
2: you know and that can that can be bad and good if the activists have bad ideas but i think in general like having an engaged board like that knows that the shareholders can vote them out if they're upset is is ultimately a good thing
1: right Okay, so let's get into that. Again, the book is "Dear Chairman: Boardroom Battles and the Rise of Shareholder Activism." Why write about shareholder activism? I mean, I do think
2: it's an inter- like it's an interesting topic, and it kind of allows me to tell a history of public companies and business in a fun way. Like the way that I that I um, I structure the book is uh, through case studies. I took eight case studies. The first is in the 1920s, and they go through the mid two thousands, and each of them uh, profiles a, a particular intervention. Um, but to your question of you know of how come I wrote this book, I, I mean, it's always you know been a thing that fascinates me. I um, I came into this industry in um, in the early two thousands when there was this particular breed of shareholder activism that was based on trying to shame the CEO. So like you would have these extremely angry, uh, you know, public uh, letters that would kind of like insult the CEOs, you know, mm. a mother or something like that. And I came of age in that era. And so I just like began to collect a bunch of these uh, letters. And so the book, you know,
1: kind of came out of my collection of letters. Let's talk about those letters, because I know you mix in some really what caught my right off the bat, people like. Uh, Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett, Ross Perot, Carl Icahn, right? Many people know there. Mm -hmm. What first, let's try and see, did you pull anything out of these big names, right? Did they have a similar tone or objective? Were they very argumentative and trying to control or were they just advisory? You know, anything that you pulled out there? Yeah. I mean, it depends on the situation. So, um,
2: in the Ross Perot one, he had bought. Well, he had uh, sold his company to to GM in the eighties, like uh, when GM was among the biggest companies in the world, and and they put him on the board. And he quickly figured out, like, oh man, this is a really poorly run company, and they're taking the wrong direction. And so, him being Ross Perot, he's a a brutally direct person. He wrote this quite angry, you know, four page letter. to – uh, to Roger Smith, the, the CEO, um, you know, kind of a calling out like the way that Smith acted as a CEO, the long term strategy, the flaws with the company, it was incredibly harsh. The Benjamin Graham letter was like he had um, he was a shareholder in a company that was essentially controlled by the uh, you know the Rockefellers, so he kind of had to write as as a supplicant you know, trying to persuade them to pursue a particular corporate action. And so, it, like, it depends on the nature of the case study. And in the Buffett one, that's a, uh, that's a letter that he wrote to American Express in 1964. He was actually defending the CEO um, against uh, shareholder activists, um, you know, uh, 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 um, uh, trying to support the company and, and offering to testify on its behalf.
1: Whenever I think about Warren Buffett, I I had the chance to interview his son, Peter, and I did some research on Buffett. He was always an icon for me, and I'm wondering if in your book, in your letters that you read in studying him, if you ever came across this, which is a lot of people see Warren Buffett as just a brilliant investor, and I'm not saying he wasn't. But I did find out or research that oftentimes because of his strength, he could you know, basically, strong arm a lot of aspects of a company, which almost seems like the definition of shareholder activism.
2: Yeah, well, in his early days in in the fifties, um, he would often you know buy controlling stakes, like replace the board, uh, force the board to like to pay up, you know, a cash distribution. He did um, a lot of things that like that, like that, that you would call classic uh, shareholder activism. And I talk about that in the book in the context of this investment that he made in American Express in the mid sixties. And in American Express, he came out on the other side, like, you know, there's these activists like involved in the company that, um, you know, are trying to compel the, the company to do something that Buffett thinks will hurt the company. And he decides to, like to like to intervene on behalf of management, and and it's a real turning point in his career because he begins to focus, you know, more on high quality uh, businesses with, you know, uh, you know, long term sustainable growth as opposed to these like what he called uh, cigar butts, mm. which he he invested in in the fifties and early sixties, where like you know um, he would say you could get the the, the cigar butt off the ground like for nothing and get a few free puffs Mm -hmm. and you know actually you know berkshire hathaway was you know a textile company in massachusetts it was a terrible business that was you know very much a cigar bud and so that was an example of the kind of um, investing like that he was doing before um, american express
1: wow so you've had the chance to see the good and the bad of shareholder investing, both personally through your investing, and then also through this book and through the letters. When did you see a great example of shareholders really turning a company around or voicing their opinions in a way that truly benefited the company itself, although perhaps not management? Well, I
2: mean, the best example would be Berkshire Hathaway, right? That's like, Mm. it was a dying, uh, you know, a textile company that like was on a straight path to insolvency and irrelevance, and now it has, you know, three hundred and fifty thousand employees, and is um, like among the biggest companies in the world, and that's you know kind of all been through Buffett's um, asset allocation.
1: They don't do textiles still, do they? Uh, don't they own a uh, fruit of the loom? I guess what? that's textiles. Oh yeah. Oh, I see. So okay. So under their umbrella.
2: But yeah, it's not a, a material part of their business.
1: <laughs> I was like that'd be interesting now, what's the flip side of this? You talked about people i mean is it people just having too much of a voice if they own some of the company?
2: I think the flip side is that if you're kind of a passive a shareholder like you have to like to understand that a lot of these activists that you know the that get involved they're you know will. Like they're out to make a profit for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you know they are economic actors, you know, trying to make a buck. And so, as a shareholder, you know, uh, you have to choose between a management team that might be self-interested, like that might you know, uh, you know, not have your best interests in mind, or this financial investor that that also might not have your best interests like in mind, and so. There have been bad cases of activism. There um, have been cases of of shareholder activists that you know take over public companies and then overpay themselves or, or you know, uh, do questionable things with the cash flows. There's a case in my book, um, the case of, of BKF Capital that was actually a bunch of activists got involved and essentially destroyed the company. In 18 months, the stock essentially went to zero. Wow! And so it can go wrong. Like you have to use your judgment as a voting shareholder. And that's, you know, kind of the point of my book is it's not very prescriptive. I'm not trying to kind of, you know, tell you activism is bad or activism is good. It's just, you know, trying to, to like to give you the tools to think about it properly, to like to understand um, how it works and to kind of improve your judgment.
1: How does activism from a shareholder perspective affect the average person? Because, you know, well, first, I guess, how do you end up becoming a shareholder that has a voice? You can't just buy one share. I mean, you are then a shareholder, but you don't have a voice. So what does it mean to actually have a voice? How much you have to own, per se? And then, assuming most people aren't that, how does it translate to the average person?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things. I mean, well, first of all, I mean, every share has a vote. So, like, you do get votes and, you know, uh, uh, sometimes these, uh, like, the board elections are close. But the other thing is, like, a, a lot of us do have our, you know, retirement savings or savings invested in big institutions that are active investors. If you're a teacher in California, uh, Calsters, like, the entity that invests the teacher pension plans, is a, is a very, you know, progressive activist investor. And so... Like, in that sense, like, we all, you know, um, have a stake in the future of good governance. And then the broader issue is, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, corporate behavior affects the world, right? It affects the world that we live in in profound ways. And especially now as these, you know, uh, corporations are bigger and, you know, more intricate and more, you know, um, um, intertwined in our lives, you know, bad corporate Uh, behavior can have extremely bad effects I mean if you look at AIG they almost you know brought down the world Mm -hmm. and so it does affect everyone and I think you know the kind of practical effect of pervasive activism is it does kind of us, you know like it makes our capitalist uh, corporations you know more capitalist like it takes out uh, that you know the inefficiencies that are kind of that build up between the CEO and the board and the shareholders, and I think there there are people that would probably argue that those inefficiencies, like at least, put a damper like on capitalism, you know, doing its worst. Yeah, you know, so there are situ. I mean, there is a a classic example in in the in, in the eighties. There is a corporate raider who took control of of uh, Pacific Lumber, which. Had all of this like old growth, uh, West Coast, um, you know, well, redwood forests, and the guy got control and basically a clear cut it all, you wow. know, in a non you know, sustainable way. And is that a shortcoming of activism, or is that a, like a, like a shortcoming of capitalism? I mean, like, a, I mean, I would argue it's well, kind of the latter.
1: Um, yeah, for sure. You know, but I mean, that's activism I can think.
2: kind of like can. Like can grease the wheels of these big corporations to kind of
1: act as they would, you
2: know, in a, in a purely capitalistic fashion.
1: Yeah, that's – I like the way you put that um, because if you think about it as an investor, even as an, if you aren't an investor but more so if you have your money in somewhere, today more than ever you can become an activist, right? If you have a following if, – if I wanted to really bash a company, which I have thought about by the way. Yeah. Um, I could hammer it in over and over and over again on the podcast, not saying you know, that you know, 10, 20,000 people is going to make the biggest difference in the world, but maybe it gets coverage, and now it's in the media, and now the media needs stories, so they run with it, and one little person's voice could make a difference, hence shareholder activism.
2: Yeah, and you know, there, like, there are like, some organizations like you know, uh, PETA like that has tried that through the public shareholder system. And so like, there are ways like to do that. I mean, that's not a focus of the book. I focus, you know, more on the financial investor side. Right. But yeah, like you definitely have a, I mean, it's unden- like, it's undeniably true. Like that corporations can do some, some, you know, a pretty ridiculous thing. I mean, uh, um, I like have little kids, right? I do. I have a 10 month old. Um, have you seen this thing? Well, you, like if he or she is ten months, then like you might not be a slave to to Disney yet. Not yet, not yet. Like, but once you are, there's this thing on a Disney DVD where it pulls up like a menu, and you can either go to the main menu,
1: mm-hmm.
2: main menu, or there's a button called fast play, and it's like this is enhanced with fast play. You can just click the fast play for a fast play. So you click fast play. And fast play is actually uh, takes you to like twenty minutes of advertisements. What until movie stars? And it's kind of like, wh- like who the hell would invent this thing? It's like only like a weird, you know, it's, it's, it's like it's just you know like a sign of the uh, like of the the like the evils that can come out of big corporations.
1: Yeah, it's not serving <laughs> anyone. Wait, now I'm fascinated though. Real quick, fast play as in once you get through the ads, is the movie in fast forward? i think the point
2: of fast play is that you click a button and then it just goes but, but, but that's it not goes all like happens. 25 minutes of ads that you don't want to watch
1: oh my so, god
2: so it's pretty ridiculous
1: that is and, that, and that's the world we live in right it is the world we live in but it is capitalism that's where i mean oh gosh it's for me i'm always torn and in this political current political environment too right with the debates and everything you know, you look at, okay, more government versus less government. Well, capitalism works in some instances, because frankly, look, I, I live in right outside of DC. I know tons of friends work for the government. Government can do great things, put somebody on the moon, right? The government can also be extremely wasteful. Extremely. We see it with the VA and the hospitals. But in this so then you balance, okay, well, corporations can be extremely innovative and they can bootstrap and get great things done. Or they can add fast play and twenty five minutes of ads to your life. Yeah, it's It's like it's a
2: weird thing that I, you know, uh, uh, the way that I talk about that in the book is the transformation of GM. You know, so like you think about GM Mm -hmm. in the twenties, you know, through the fifties, it was among the best companies in the world. Um, Like without that company. It's not clear that you know we would have won World War II. They you know had a tremendous in, like impact on the on the war effort. Right. And GM, in twenty years, they became among the worst companies in the history of the world. And like it's a real fine line between a well governed company and a poorly governed company. Yeah. And so that's you know what kind of the point of the book is to kind of explain how fine that line is and how the system works. And it's just, it's a clear example of like how quickly things can go terribly wrong.
1: I like that summation. That's where we should end it because you know what, right there, now I'm buying the book. Uh, Well, because it's one of those things at first you kind of think, look, that's beyond arm's reach. I don't know if I'll ever be a, a shareholder big enough for my voice to matter, you know, but then if it's like, yeah, but corporations, the way they impact our lives, let's understand how management plays a role and then how the board plays a role and people invest it really really great stuff um Jeff thanks so much i mean in the Jeff, time that you've spent on the show your fund probably just made seven figures so you know i feel like uh i feel like maybe i played a little role in that
2: thank <laughs> you sir i owe you a beer at yeah, some point that
1: sounds good <laughs> to me the book is dear chairman boardroom battles and the rise of shareholder activism jeff graham incredible thank you and is there anywhere else i mean uh people interested in investing with you now where, where where what's your uh fund's name or do you write do you are you on social um yeah you know i do have a twitter
2: account i'm trying not to like to use the book as a marketing you oh, know, okay so so basically if you're interested in these ideas i would suggest the book as opposed cool. to my cool. fund
1: <laughs> hey no worries <laughs> well, what's your Twitter handle or if you're on there?
2: It's uh, Jeff Graham. I'm brand new on that. I don't really know what to do with it, but it's, it's just uh, Jeff Graham. Uh, uh, there's an underscore in there somewhere.
1: <laughs> I love it. All right, Jeff. Thanks so much. Uh, really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks a
2: lot. And yeah, like I'm, you know, I'm sorry about all the cutoffs.
1: Oh no worries. That'll take two seconds to edit through there. No worries. Cool. All right, man. Have a good one. All right, man. Have a good day. All right, you too. Bye bye.
0: Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Jeff Graham. Jeff's book, Dear Chairman, Boardroom Battles, and the Rise of Shareholder Activism is available on Amazon and at your local bookstore. If you do decide to purchase through Amazon, please make sure to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. If you're looking for other easy and free ways to support Smart People Podcasts, Please head over to iTunes and Stitcher. Leave a rating, review, comment over there. It really does help out the show, and we appreciate each and every single one of you that take the time to do so. Make sure you head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com to see all things Smart People Podcast related. Sign up for the newsletter, see upcoming guests, all that good stuff. We've got some great episodes coming up, and we'll see you all next week.